Wanna help me? Okay. Kai wants to help me, so he might stand next to me. I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so for Sunday school this morning, we are gonna do a Bible overview. Uh, I really like interaction in teaching. Um, I'm not, I know there's different styles, so I will be asking a lot of questions and hoping you participate. And those questions are leading in nature, obviously, so you can't say objection leading if you want, um, right? <laughs> but uh, that's kind of the point is I want to lead you down how the themes and the, all that connects in the Bible. So with that, if you're a dreary morning person like I am and about 9.30 you start to get more energy, that's okay. I'll be looking for your participation at 9.30. But if you are a morning person, I'll be looking for your participation right away. Uh, so we start uh, the Bible off with a grand story of creation. Right? God creates the world, and really important and kind of foundational in creation is some very overlooked words, which is, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So from the be very beginning, we see that God speaks, and it is. And then he makes man... And he gives him a choice. Now, this is what we call the covenant of works. Why is it called the covenant of works? Well, essentially, Adam and Eve, they were having to work for eternal salvation. They were given a free choice in the garden in perfection. Um, thank you, bud. Uh, in the garden in perfection. And God said, do not eat of this tree. And if they didn't eat of the tree then they would be ushered into eternal glory. But if they did, a consequence would happen. So you can see here, depending on their choice, you either have reward or consequence. Well, we all know what happened, because we all live in a sinful world. Uh, Eve was deceived by the serpent, and then Adam was deceived as well. And Adam failed to uphold his duty in creation uh, to lead Eve and to lead creation into righteousness, as Paul says in Romans. And so the consequence happened, but not the full consequence. And that's what we need to understand. It was mercy that God killed an animal and clothed them. So from the beginning, what we have is we have a due consequence given to mankind and then God shows mercy right away. And I think this fact is overlooked a little bit, uh, or at least in my experience as a Christian. Hey, buddy, you got to go be with mom, okay? Go sit with mom. Um, at least in my experience as a Christian, uh, that fact has been overlooked. It's kind of been emphasized that after Adam and Eve, it was still works. After Adam and Eve, it was still, oh, here is the law of Moses. It needs, uh, you need to work out not work out, but you need to work for your salvation. But that's not true. From the beginning, what we have is a promise, or sorry, a, uh, a condition, and then a response, and then we have mercy. And with that, we have a promise in Genesis 3.15. So some people say that the whole Bible, in a sense, is a footnote to Genesis 3.15, if you've ever heard that phrase before. And what does Genesis 3.15 says? Does anyone know off the top of their head? I'm sure y'all, many do. But let's see. What is the promise that God gives specifically to Eve? 
No? All right. Who has a Bible? All right. Uh, I know you're a sandal. I forget all the names. I apologize. Which one is it? Natalia. All right, Natalia, do you want to read Genesis 3.15 for us? Oh, that's all right. All right. Does anyone have Genesis 3.15? And sorry, I misspoke. It's not given to the woman. Judah, do you know it? All right, Judah, let's hear it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All right. Or you want 16 and 17? No, I just want 15. All right. Yeah, 15. So we all know, or hopefully you're getting on that, that's speaking of Christ. So right away, there's a promise. And with every covenant in the Bible, it starts with a promise. And we need to remember that. And every time the covenant is renewed, a new promise is given. And so what we're going to see as we venture down the Old Testament is something called progressive revelation. It's not liberal revelation, uh, but it is revelation progressing over time. God is slowly revealing through the different covenants through Abraham, through Moses, what salvation will entail and how it will come to fulfillment. And it starts with this promise right here, that God, he will put enmity between the snake, the serpent, and the woman, and between the offspring of the serpent, between the offspring of the woman. So right away, what you see is you have what some would call an allegorical interpretation because it's not physically saying, it's not saying simply just that the snake babies will be mad against uh, women's babies, right? If, if you want to go with the liberal interpretation of that, literal interpretation of that, that's what it would be saying. But it's going much, much deeper than that. And so when we read the Old Testament, it's really important that we keep these in mind. As Augustine said, and I've said it many times, and those at uh, the school I teach at know it, he says that in the old is the new concealed, and the new is the old revealed. So there is a connection there that we're going to progress through time, known as the, if you want to uh, get really technical, known as the Historia Salutis, history of salvation, uh, where God is revealing his salvation. So we have that promise. Then we have another promise. Does anyone know where the next promise is in this a fulfillment of revelation. Callan? Um, Not quite Noah. Noah's a little different. Who, is, who am I thinking of? Who, as a Christian, you are a child of who? Abraham. Does anyone know where this promise is given? 12, 15, and 17. I'm thinking 12, 3. But yes, chapter 12, right? And the promise given to Abraham is what? Does anyone know what that promise is? Natalia. Not quite. That's Genesis 15. It's it's even before that. Callan? Yeah, through him, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. So what we have in Genesis 3.15 is a seed, and we planted it. And as time goes on, it's going to reveal more. 
And then we have a baby tree right there. Right? Because now it's not just, okay, there is going to be a savior who will crush the serpent's head, but now we know through whom it's going to happen. And what will it also do? It's also going to bless the entire world. And then we go on and we see that Abraham has a child, and it is a type of Christ. Right? If you're not familiar with that terminology, it's basically a foreshadowing of the character of Christ. Isaac was called to be sacrificed at age like seven, I think it is. Uh, but then God provided a ram and he wasn't sacrificed, which was good. So that then Isaac has more children and he has Jacob and Esau. Now the story of Jacob and Esau is really important for many reasons. And one of the biggest reasons we see that its importance is Jacob and Esau were not the best people. <laughs> All right? Jacob, like, he tricked his father to get Esau's blessing and then ran away and then had to work for Laban and he had to learn humility and righteousness. Right? And I forget the exact reference, but Jacob essentially says that I had to learn to not repay evil for evil with Laban. But what's the message being given through the story of Jacob and Esau? God's promises are coming to fulfillment even though certain people may do wrong. And so what we see is we see that as the story progresses, we continually have a person we're looking for, a Messiah, but it's not coming, it's not happening, right? Oh, maybe Isaac is going to be that person that's going to bless the whole world. Well, then he has two sons who just aren't the greatest people, honestly. And one of them has to learn humility. Maybe they're going to be the ones who bless the whole world. Then Jacob has 12 sons. And what do the 12 sons do? Well, the oldest wants to kill the, young, the youngest brother, throws him into a pit, uh, and then lies to their father. Or, you know, they kill an animal, put the blood on his... Uh, on a coat, on his coat, give it to his father, and they don't know what happens to him. But what is happening throughout the whole story so far? God is working. God is working through an uh, imperfect, sinful man to fulfill his promises given to his people. And that's what's really important as we go through the Old Testament into the New, is that no matter what, God, like I said in the beginning, when he speaks, it happens. So when he gives a promise... It will happen. When he promises Abraham, it will come to fulfillment. When he gives a promise to Israel in the wilderness, it will come to fulfillment. So then we get to Egypt. And what is happening in Egypt? What, is, what has happened? Right? We have this promise to Abraham. Now the descendants of Abraham are numerous. Has anyone ever caught that in Scripture it actually says that in Egypt, his descendants were as numerous as the stars. Yeah. So there's a partial fulfillment there, right? Abraham's people are growing. But what's the issue? They're in slavery. They're in slavery to idol worshipers. And here we have kind of the, I would say, the most important type or the most important analogy as we look forward to the Christian life. The exodus is, in a sense, the Jewish salvation. 
It is the paradigm for how salvation works. Life under slavery, deliverance from slavery, and then a giving of commandments or law. So what do we have? Just like after the garden, we have mercy and grace bringing them out of Egypt. And what do we have? We have a giving of commandments to keep them in the grace. And so here, there's a big misunderstanding that I was taught for a long time is that the Mosaic law was a law of works or a covenant of works. But from the beginning, it was a covenant of grace. It was grace, law, and then grace. The interesting part is when you read in Deuteronomy, the Lord says, when you break this law, it's almost as if he knows that people are going to break the law. When you break this law, you must come and, and we get to the, the crux of the Christian message, repent. You must turn from your evil ways. So from the beginning, even in Israel, it was turn from your evil ways. It wasn't just a matter of being circumcised physically. It was a matter of circumcision of the heart in order for this physical circumcision to be true. And so that analogy or that type, we'll say, is kind of the paradigm for salvation as we get to Christ. And it's really important because Paul, Paul draws upon it a ton in his letters. I mean, if you've read Romans, you can kind of see it all over the place. He talks about law. He talks about grace. He talks about misunderstanding of the law. And all of it is in scripture. But the issue, as Jesus says, is what? The Pharisees had a veil over the eyes. They read Moses, but they cannot see Moses, in a sense. They know, but they don't understand. And that's always been the issue. The issue has never changed. And so as we progress through uh, Revelation, the issues are always the same, and the answers are always the same, except the law given, or the sacrificial laws, were unable to actually cover sin. That was one of the fundamental issues. Right, so they're in the wilderness, and God gives Moses all of these laws. Does anyone know how many sacrifices there were? How many different types of sacrifices there were? Main ones. Callan? Close. There's four, four big ones. It's a little more than that. Anyone want to guess? I can't call seven. I mean, that would be the perfect number, right? But there were six. <laughs> um, there were six, and really there's four kind of big ones uh, because there's an ordination offering as well, which only went for the Levites. So, But in those sacrifices, you had multiple types of covering of sin. Right? You had the covering of sin when there was no peace among people, hence a peace offering. You had the sacrifice for intentional sin. And then you also had sacrifices for unintentional sins. So once again, as we, when we get to Christ, all of these things need to be in our mind, in the background. When we understand sin, when we understand forgiveness, when we understand what the sacrifice did for us, if we have this in the background, we kind of understand what the full meaning is. But as you can see, the tree is getting a little bigger. Right? Abraham didn't have these sacrifices. 
Abraham was still justified by faith, but now God is revealing more and more as how salvation is going to be worked out and fulfilled. So then Israel goes and they are called out of mercy. And then what do they do? They follow after their father, Adam, and they disobey. So God prohibits them from entering his rest in the promised land. But what happens after that? Grace. Because really what should have happened is you and your descendants will not enter the promised land. You and the nation will be shun off from the promises I have given to Abraham. But instead, because God said, I will bless Abraham, he is going to continue his promise no matter what. And he gives grace and mercy to the descendants and they enter the land and we have a good example of someone who does obey the Lord in many ways. Joshua, he is a great example. And in fact, Jesus is named after him. Uh, if you want to know the etymology of that, talk to me after. It's kind of fun. But anyways... Uh, his name. But Joshua is a good paradigm of a Christ figure, a type. Now, he is imperfect. He does not do right all the time, but he is a good leader who fears the Lord. And he brings them into the land. But what do the Israelites do? They disobey God's commands. Right? They continue this cycle of disobedience. And so what we see here is we see this cycle going on, Right? Disobedience, grace. Disobedience, grace. Disobedience, grace. The covering of sin. Disobedience, grace. But then we get to judges, and it gets a little worse. Because the disobedience gets even worse. And in judges, you have like seven cycles of worsening disobedience to the point at the end in judges where it says what? Does anyone know the big phrase of judges and the take-home message? Anyone remember? Bingo! Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So where are we back at? We're back at Adam. Right? What, what was Adam's primary sin? He did what he wanted to. He didn't do what God wanted to. And so at Judges, we're at a point where, oh, we kind of haven't gone very far. <clears throat> God has revealed salvation. <clears throat> He's revealed a path. He's given a path to salvation, and yet the people are kind of stuck. And they cry out. What do they say? They say, we want to be like the other nations. And they go to Samuel, and they say, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. Now, what does Samuel and God do? They reluctantly, in a sense, give him a king. But what's the key point there? God is still going to fulfill his promise through this king. So what does he ensure? He ensures the promises that he gave earlier in scripture are fulfilled through this kingship. Now, if we backtrack a little, what lineage? Well, the first king was Saul, and we all know Saul was bad. Right? Hopefully you know that. Raise your hand if you thought Saul was good. No, he's not very good. All right? Then we have David. And what lineage does David come through? Does anyone know which son of Jacob? <laughs> yeah. He's kind of got to cheat because it's his name. <laughs> it's Judah. <clears throat> so back in Genesis 50, uh, 
when uh, Jacob is blessing his children, uh, he gives a promise to Judah. And does anyone know what that promise is in specific words? Anyone know? What's the promise given to Judah? The scepter will never depart from you. Now, just like when we read Genesis 3.15 allegorically, we dove deeper into the meaning. We need to read deeper into this meaning. It's not that Judah's always going to have a scepter. And it's not that Judah's family will always have like some scepter hanging up in their house and be like, look at that scepter. We got it from God. Awesome. Right? No. It means something. And it means that the kingship of God will never depart from the lineage of Judah. And in fact, what it's pointing at is that it's fully fulfilled in Christ, but our tree is growing bigger. And there is some fulfillment historically in this. Where is it fulfilled? With what king? Anyone know? Jesus. No. Solomon. Not Solomon. Ah, uh, yeah. David. David. Yeah, his middle name. David. Right? It's, filled with, it's fulfilled with David. Right? And that's the whole point of the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth is literally given so that you understand the mercies and the grace God has worked to fulfill his promises so that the lineage of Judah would install a righteous king into Israel. Because who is David's, I think it's grandmother? Ruth. Ruth is David's grandmother. And Ruth, the only way that can happen is if Boaz actually redeems the whole situation and acts as that redeemer. And so what we see is we see this tie going all the way through scripture, this connection. And God is slowly fulfilling and showing his revelation. But David, as the <clears throat> blessed king, what does he do? That's an issue. Sin. Sin. Yes. He commits a sin. And in fact, he commits multiple sins. And in fact, he commits multiple intentional sins, which is even worse. And in fact, on top of that, with his intentionality of sinning, he kills people. It's called murder. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But he murders someone in one of them, right? And he wants glory for himself. Now he repents, right? And he's a good example but he's not the answer. Unfortunately, he's not the answer, right? What Israel has been hoping for is this king that will come and that will rule the nation of Israel and impart salvation to all the people of Israel and then to the world, that was always the idea, fails. And what we get after David is a slow decline. But does Oh, hold on. Slow decline, and it splits into two separate nations. We have the ten northern tribes of Israel, which traditionally is just called Israel. So if you're wondering about the terminology in the scripture, the, after Solomon, the ten northern tribes are called Israel. And over time, they become Samaria. We'll get into exactly what happens with that. And then there is two tribes. Does anyone know which two tribes um, are, you know, are linked together? in an inheritance, in a sense, and are, have Jerusalem in them. What two tribes? You've been answering too much. Someone else. Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin. <clears throat> so we have Judah, who has promised something in Genesis 50, and Benjamin, 
the beloved son of Jacob. Right? And they are linked together, and they're traditionally called Judah after this split. So when you read in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and you see that, you see Israel, you need to be thinking 10 northern tribes. When you see Judah, you need to be thinking Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, and that incorporates Jerusalem. Now, does anyone know something interesting about Israel, the 10 northern tribes? They start to get kings, right? And in the book of Kings, we have it talking. What's that key phrase about each king? Does anyone know whether or not they did right or not? Yost? They're always comparing uh, either to Jeroboam or David. Yeah, they're either comparing to Jeroboam or David. And David did right in the eyes of the Lord, and Jeroboam did not. So the 10 10, uh, (coughs) tribes called Israel, how many kings did they have that did right in the eyes of the Lord? Does anyone know? Zero. Zero. Yeah, zero. Right? And so they are starting to get wiped away. And one of their big sins and what what creates Samaria or the Samaritans, does anyone know what their big sin was? Callan? If you're not sure, I'll give you a hint. Look to the Ten Commandments, specifically number one. Tyndale. They what? Okay. (laughs) All right. What did they do? They intermarried with other nations and started worshiping other gods. So Israel blood was now mixed with Gentile blood. And Israel's worship of the one true God was mixed with foreign gods. And they mixed them together, just like we see today, honestly. It's no different. Like, they were like, let's praise God, and then let's play, praise Baal. Let's give, us, give a sacrifice to Asherah, and then let's build a temple for God. So it's not that God was out of the picture, but the issue was they wanted everything. Right? They wanted all the gods, they wanted their own desires, and they continually did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. So God sent a nation to destroy him. What nation destroyed him? Does anyone know? Starts with an A. Assyria, you guys all know a lot. All right. Assyria, yes. And what prophet was prophesying during the time of the Assyria coming in and destroying them? To the northern tribes. It's our big, big book in the Bible. Isaiah, yeah. So when you read Isaiah, have that in mind. Right? Isaiah is, is giving prophecy to the northern tribes who are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then he's talking about what in the end of Isaiah? He's talking about how God is still going to fulfill his promise. And he's even going to come to the Samaritans and give them salvation. So once again, what we see is we see that people disobeyed, but God is going to fulfill his promise. The tree is getting bigger. Now with Judah, does anyone know how many kings did right in the eyes of the Lord? It's a tricky one. Callan? Eight? I thought it was six. It might be, I might be wrong. Maybe it's eight. It's a low number. But because of that, they prospered longer. But what ended up happening? Well, they ended up being destroyed, right? And that's what we call the exile. Does anyone know what nation came in and destroyed Judah and Benjamin? Judah, what nation destroyed you? 
Babylon, yes. Babylon, specifically King Nebuchadnezzar. But something interesting about King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, a dream is given to him. A dream about Christ. A dream is given to a pagan king about the Jewish Messiah who is going to save the whole world. And who is there to interpret it? Daniel. And so what we see is that God now is opening the doors. He's saying, look, I have given you my people, the nation of Judah, a chance, and you have hardened your hearts. So if you're thinking Romans 10, I want you to be thinking Romans 10, right? The tree of partial hardening has happened. So that what? The fulfillment of salvation may come to completion. A partial hardening in Israel so that the Gentiles may be grafted in. And we see that kick off with Nebuchadnezzar, actually. Because what happens with Nebuchadnezzar? Interesting story. I mean, he's a pretty evil king. He loves himself. He's got a ton of money. He throws people into the lion's den. But I think we forget this sometimes. Nebuchadnezzar actually repents of his evil deeds and worships God. A Gentile is starting to be grafted in. The plan of salvation is unfolding more and more. And it's going to come to a fulfillment when we hit Christ. So after the, the exile, God had promised his people he'd return him to the land, and he did. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. And then we have some silence, right? Because the plan is not yet complete. And the people need to realize that their hardening is going to actually open the doors and the floodgates for the Gentiles to, be, to inherit salvation. So then we get to Christ. We get to 0 AD Rome. And what happens? Right? We have all of these thoughts. We, like they had all these anticipations about the Messiah. Okay, David wasn't quite it, but we're going to get a king like David. Oh, some of those judges weren't it. Joshua wasn't it, but we're going to get a king who will be born, who can then overthrow Rome, give us our land back, take over the world and bless the nations. But what happens? Why, why does Jesus cause so many issues for all of the Jewish people? It's Judah. Let's hear it. Exactly. Because the whole issue was not physical conquering. If we go back to Genesis 3.15, if we go back to the root issue, the root issue is actually internal. It's the sin within. And if we look at the law of Moses, what we see is that those sacrifices were never able to actually cover sin fully. Why? Well, Paul tells us it was a daily reminder that you're going to keep sinning. Right? You will continue to do wrong, and then you'll have to go back to the sacrifice, make a sacrifice. And you will do this perpetual cycle until the day you die. And chances are, right before you die, you may sin unintentionally and not make a sacrifice. And what's going to happen? You're in a state of wrath. You deserve judgment. That's the whole issue. So what needed to happen was there needed to be a king, a person, with unstained blood, Right? not stained by sin. That is, he doesn't sin. Christ comes into the picture. And what do we know about Christ? He never sinned, right? He never sinned and he went to the cross and he died as that one sacrifice. That's kind of what the whole book of Hebrews is about. And if you're here when I preached on Hebrews 8 and 9, that, you know, that's what I talked about and emphasized. That the, the, 
uh, fundamentally, the blood is different of Christ. And so now we have new wine into new wineskins. Right? The whole method of sacrificing over and over again old wineskins, we cannot do because the new blood is going to burst the wineskin. You can't re-sacrifice Christ over and over. That's why Hebrews talks about it as a one-time sacrifice, a once-and-for-all sacrifice. That's where we get that language. Right? It covers all sins, past, present, and future. There's no more need for daily sacrifices. But what is there always still a need for? Judah? Repentance. Repentance. Yeah. Right? Just like in the Old Covenant, repentance was required for sins to be forgiven. It was never just a matter of doing the physical thing, just like circumcision was not a matter of physical circumcision, and uh, you needed circumcision of the heart as well. Sacrifices, right? The whole point was repent of your sin. Make it known to God, as we're going to read later today, Psalm 32, make it known to God, walk in the light, and he will forgive you. And that's what David experienced. That's why he wrote that psalm. So as Christ came onto the scene, he started interpreting the Old Testament this way. And the Pharisees, they just couldn't handle it. And that's where you get most of your parables. That's where, like, I, I, I mean, this might be venturing too far, but all the parables are kind of out of that idea of Christ interpreting the Old Testament as this plan of salvation for all people. And if you read Moses and see it incorrectly, you're always going to be hindered and be uh, carried on by a burden of sin. <clears throat> and so that's why the author of Hebrews says the following, which is really important, because at the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection, salvation has been finished. There is no more new revelation. And that's why the New Testament ends basically with the testimony of the apostles and the witness of Christ. It's because salvation is complete. Our tree is full. Right? And it says in Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in, the, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So you see that God speaking is done. And that's really important. Because what did we have from the beginning? God spoke and creation. God spoke and gave law. God spoke and brought mercy. God spoke and instructed Israel. But what has happened now? God has spoken and his speaking is finished. Salvation is finished. And so if you read literature in the old, like older literature, they'll say a new dispensation has occurred. That just means a new time period. So don't get confused with dispensationalism. I did for a while, and I was like, what does that mean? Why are they doing and saying that? But what it means is you have the old dispensation of the covenant, which is the Old Testament time, God speaking through the prophets. And then you have the new dispensation of the covenant, which is right now, God has spoken. And so those who then put their faith in Christ are children of Abraham because there's a connection there. It's never changed. The means of salvation has never changed. It's always been faith. It's always been faith in God and trusting in his word. That is the failure that Adam had. He didn't trust God's word. If he had faith, he would have succeeded. But he didn't. And that was a stumbling of every person since and in our stumblings as well. 
Uh, and so the Apostle Paul, when he encounters this, you can see why he is just mind blown. It's it, a whole paradigm shift because his whole, his whole world was built around understanding the law as the means of salvation. He saw Moses but didn't understand Moses, um, as he says. And so now he understood and was a, a prophet or apostle to the Gentiles. That was really important. Right? The 12 were apostles to the Jewish people. Paul, apostle to the Gentile. That doesn't mean we just listen to Paul, by the way. Um, some people go down that route. But uh, you can see that now you have the ingrafting of the Gentiles into salvation, and our tree is complete. And you can see that in the world now. Like Christianity, Christ's death and resurrection has blessed the entire world. People have been converted. Gentiles have been converted uh, because of it. And so there, if you've ever read the, the story by, um, oh, I forget his name. It's the biggest story. What's his name? Kevin D. Young. He has a children's book called The Biggest Story. It's really good because it helps you see the, the Bible at like a thousand foot picture, especially in a child's eye. And it, it just covers these major themes of God fulfilling his promises. And when we look at the Bible, that's what we need to keep in our mind. When we read the whole of the Bible, we need to keep in our mind that God is fulfilling his promise of salvation to people. That is all. I don't know what we normally do to end Sunday school questions or singing, but yeah, it's 9.45, so I want to give time for transition. So I guess any questions? Question. Julia. You said that the tree is fulfilled and that the uh, world has been blessed through Abraham because Gentiles have been saved. Would you say that we're still in that process of fulfillment? So the, the fulfillment is complete in that uh, there is no new, like, person that God is going to reveal to bless people. The fulfillment is referring to that the, of salvation. So I'd say, if you want to go with the analogy even further, more people being saved is like fruit dropping from the tree. Like, it might be producing more fruit, but the tree's not getting bigger. The tree is salvation, like the plan of salvation, um, yeah. The tree is not the kingdom. Like, it, yeah, we got to make sure the analogies are, because there's analogies with the tree being the kingdom, too. So, this tree is salvation. <laughs> Any other questions? All right.